Hello, everybody, and welcome to Parks Podcast. My name's Austin Parkinson. Excited to be back with you. It's been a while. Had an opportunity to go on a little vacation, spend some time with the family, went out to Hawaii and had a, a nice time relaxing in the sun and then really getting ready for the recruiting season here. That is July, where we travel quite a bit. But uh, looking forward to get out, getting out several podcasts here in the next couple of weeks, uh, interviewing different guests. And so I hope uh, you'll rejoin us. Our first guest this week uh, is one of my good friends and uh, we'll cover a variety of topics maybe touch on the British Open a little bit uh, some Chicago sports and get into his career as well so when we come back from the break we'll be joined by my guest this week Dan Beret. guest on the pod this week is one of my closest friends in coaching and one of the guys I learned quite a bit from when I was the director of basketball operations at IPFW. He's got a unique career path and is one of the hardest workers I know from Jacksonville University and getting ready to head out on the road recruiting today. Dan Bure. Dan, how are you? I'm doing good, coach. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Looks like you've got a busy schedule. You're heading out uh, recruiting. This time of the year is always busy for coaches. Talk about what it's like being on the road, uh, away from family, um, and and living out of a suitcase for days on end. Yeah, it's kind of unique. I don't know how many years it's been uh, now since they've switched to the three uh, five-day periods on uh, the, the men's side in college basketball, but we're in the middle of uh, the start of week two. Uh, I'm in Orlando, Florida, and it's it's a hard time because you're really home uh, Sunday nights, Monday nights, Tuesday nights, but you're getting home late on Sunday. You have two days uh, with your family and you have two days with your current players, which is kind of backwards uh, in my opinion, but it's also an efficient time to see uh, a great number of high school and junior college prospects. Um, what my wife has done is she started uh, to go up to the Midwest where both our families are from and she just spends three weeks up there. So it allows me to uh, focus on uh, the recruiting task and, and obviously our players when when we're in town. Well, you mentioned one of the challenges is being back on campus for two days at a time where one, you're trying to get familiar with freshmen that are now on campus or transfers for that matter. Also, you're running you know practices, workouts and trying to maximize that time. So really, instead of coming back and having a lot of chance to rest and kind of regroup, you hit the ground running and it's go time. Correct. Yeah, we, we did a uh, we did a workout actually on Sunday night uh, with our team, and then the players were back in there in the weight room on Monday, and then we did a workout Monday afternoon. Uh, and our head coach, Coach Tony Jasic, is doing one this afternoon. So we've had three workouts, and he's driving up to Atlanta. Uh, yeah, there's not a ton of recharge time. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a fun time of year because you are in the gym uh, really seven straight days, whether it be on campus with your guys or watching watching AAU games. So it's a fun time, but but certainly tiresome as well. well I want to back up and kind of go through your career path, and in in our state, you know, when you were selecting a college, you played high school basketball uh, from my days playing uh, intramurals with you. You were a sniper, uh, I, I 
imagine. That's right. Um, but as you, as you were selecting a college and kind of deciding, you know, where you wanted to go, you know, I think you had the, the decision between maybe playing some small college basketball in our state, everybody kind of grew up, you know, obviously not me cause I'm a Purdue guy, but a lot of people wanted to go to Indiana and be part of the, the Bob Knight and, and, and IU. You went to IU, you selected IU, and you became a manager at IU. Did you know, that? what was your reasoning for going there? And did you know right away, like, hey, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of that that, that program and the historical success um, that they've always had. Yeah, it, it, late in my senior year, or middle of my senior year, I kind of made the decision that I wasn't going to play college basketball. And, and my high school coach, uh, Jeff Powers, uh, said to me, you know, have you thought about getting into coaching, uh, you know, and, and being a, a manager in college? And I, I didn't really know what you did to get into coaching. Uh, but w- what it did was being a manager, it's basically a four-year internship. And I, I learned quickly uh, that the Indiana University uh, had a great history of, of managers. And it was a revered program, obviously. And, and my dad had went to Indiana and was uh, on the diving team. So it, it became clear that that was going to be my decision. I, I had applied at a few other places, but uh, with Indiana kind of being a family deal uh, combined with the basketball program, uh, that's the decision I made. Well, one of the things that we're seeing in trend in basketball now is at all levels, NBA, college, you're seeing a lot of former managers go on to be uh, head coaches, uh, assistant coaches, and very, very successful. What are some of the things, what are some of the duties, some of the uh, uh, experiences that you have? had there that um, helped you grow uh, and and grow into this profession as a coach. You obviously got to see uh, all sides of it. And and from, I know IU specifically, their manager is kind of like an army. I mean, there's an army of guys and, you know, you stick with it, you reap the benefits. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd I'd say the main thing that you get thrown into right away is is video. And uh, from you know, when I was there, Mike Davis was the head coach, but this was just a year or two after uh, Coach Knight, and, and there was a strong, strong emphasis placed on obviously scouting and uh, video work. And the managers were trusted with a lot, you know, right from the get go. But this is back in the VCR days, but back uh, back then we were taping. Uh, every game that was played on TV, if you can imagine starting, you know, when the season started in November. So we would tape every game and we would database them uh, in this big closet. And then obviously it was different with Big Ten games because not only were we taping them, but we were breaking them down into offensive and defensive possessions so the coaches, uh, you know, could have a little bit more of an efficient uh, film process. And then late in my my time, maybe my junior year, uh, we got Sports Code, which is now uh, taken over not only college basketball, but but all sports. And I think they have like 29 and 30 NBA teams. Uh, that, that's when they had just started all their work. So I would say the video was the main thing. Um, but, but you really get to see kind of the ins and outs. You know, you're making airport runs uh, to pick up coaches. So you're close with these guys. Um, you're rebounding for the players at night. Uh, you're, you're there an hour before practice setting up and, and rebounding for players on the floor. So it, it was a great experience. 
One of the other neat things for you was the last time that Indiana made it to a Final Four uh, was during your four years. What was that journey like being part of uh, such a historic run and some big time victories along the way and being able to be part of a Final Four? Yeah, it was really neat. That was actually my freshman year. Uh, so it, it was one of those like, man, this, this has happened every year type <laughs> of deals. Um, and it w- really enjoyed it. You know, I think everybody remembers the the win over Duke uh, being down, I think, 17 points at one point and uh, coming back. And, and I think all five of those starters for Duke uh, would go on to play in the NBA uh, so, so that that was one of the great wins, and then being in Atlanta for the Final Four, um, you know, beating Oklahoma in in the semifinal, and then being right there with Maryland, just didn't finish the game uh, the way obviously we would have liked. But but it was a great experience, uh, one that you know you, you don't want to take for granted. But because I was so young, I, I probably did, uh, you know, and and hopefully Indiana uh, can get back there here soon. Well, you worked for Mike Davis. Um, I, I had a chance to, as a player, when I was at Purdue, um, compete against him. And I, I thought he was a tremendous coach. I thought he did an outstanding job. But being in the state, I did not think he did, he got the credit that he deserved at that time. Clearly, he was following you know, the legendary Bob Knight. I've always felt he was underrated. What did you appreciate uh, about Coach Davis at the time? And then as you've got into coaching and you've grown throughout your career, maybe looking back and seeing, wow, I, I didn't realize how good he was at those things. Yeah, he, he first of all, he, he's a great people person. Um, I, I don't think there's anybody that would have been in the program during his time uh, that didn't have good things to say about coach. Uh, you know, he was great with the managers. Obviously, he built built great relationships with the players. And I think uh, that's one thing that is is uh, at the top of all coaches lists, especially in today's day and age is being a relationship guy. And I think that I think that Coach Mike Davis had that. And then from an X's and O's standpoint, tremendous uh, offensive coach. You know, he, he was the guy that was always up late watching other college games, watching the NBA, and just finding new things to put in that that could could fit Indiana. You know, the first year, uh, Jared Jeffries was on the team. And then, you know, later later in my time, you know, Bracey Wright was one of the key players. So you're talking about changing from a forward to a guard and how to get guys shots. Um, and, and also just just a good defensive discipline as well uh, with him and and uh, assistant coach John Trelor. One of the things I remember for me personally is we played Indiana in uh, the old RCA Dome in front of about 30,000 people. And I was really excited for that game as a player. You know, I grew up with the Purdue IU rivalry and it was actually one of two games in my career that I didn't get a play in. And so afterwards we lost the game. Uh, I was really down and I was walking to the bus and in the long hallway and Mike Davis uh, was coming out of his press conference. And again, I was a role player. I was a guy coming off the bench. He had no reason to speak to me, but he went out of his way to come up to me, find and say, Hey, you know, Austin, hang in there. Um, You know, these things happen, stay positive because they're going to need you throughout the year. And that always stuck with me that a head coach at a big time university like that would go out of his way uh, to to say something to me and, and kind of the position I was in at that point. One of the other things I wanted to follow up with you on is that kind of led 
led to your first opportunity. You connected with a player at the time at IU and Dane Fife, who now is an assistant coach for Tom Izzo at Michigan State. But you guys formed a strong connection that eventually turned into your first opportunity, IPFW. How did that come about and what was it like working him for him in the operations role uh, your first year at IPFW? Yeah, uh, Coach Dane Fife was uh, a senior on that Final Four team when I was a freshman. And to be honest with you, when he was a player, we didn't have – you know, a great relationship just because there wasn't enough time to, to form that relationship. I think as a manager, you kind of get to know the guys that are your age or, you know, maybe a year or two different from you just because you have so much time around these guys. Uh, but he played a year of professional basketball and then he came back to the staff uh, in, in a video role um, my junior and senior year. So, I mentioned all the time we spent in the film room. That's when I got to know him uh, on a more personal level. And and back then we were playing, uh, you know, four on four, five on five after practice. Uh, so we spent a lot of time around him and and, and the other assistants uh, as well. So right as I was finishing up, he got the job uh, in Fort Wayne, and I was very fortunate uh, to to go up there with him. Uh, really didn't have to interview uh, because I I had got to know him so well and had basically spent the last two years interviewing uh, at that point. So I went up there, got started. Obviously, the biggest difference was just the, the size of the program going from Indiana to, to Fort Wayne. You know, we just didn't have the the manpower. You, know, you mentioned an army of managers. Well, we, we probably only had one or two up, up in Fort Wayne when we got there. So here I am as a GA and then ultimately director of operations thinking that, you know, I'm going to have all these people doing stuff for me. But in reality, I was doing a lot of the manager stuff up there and uh, learned to really enjoy doing that and, and just appreciating the details that, that came with the job. Well, I know as coaches uh, move up in the profession, there was a job opening created. Your work ethic and, and your respect from the players uh, turned into an assistant coaching role. What was it like in those early years? Because Dane got the job at such a young age and uh, and also inherited a program that, that had really hadn't had much success. And so what was kind of the focus for you guys? What was it like working for Dane at that point as you guys were trying to build a program almost from scratch? Yeah, I think that the best thing that Coach did is, uh, Coach Fife is, he, he instilled a strong, strong work ethic uh, within the program, and that bled out onto the floor. Uh, you know, one thing that you'll always say about those Fort Wayne teams is they played extremely hard. Um, and I think everybody was hungry uh, on the coaching staff. You know, Jermaine Kimbrough was on that first coaching staff. Uh, Tony Jasic, who I work for now, was, uh, it was, I think, his first assistant job at the Division One level so he came in obviously hungry uh jeff tungate was the associate head coach that first year he's now the head coach at uh, oakland university uh, for their women's program so it, it was a hungry staff and that that all came from coach fife and i think that that was the best thing that we did is just instill a work ethic um and, and then he started to recruit and, and get some guys that that were from the area and i think that that helped translate uh into more wins as well now, kind of on a lighter note, share a little bit about, I, I joined the staff and I'll talk about it in a second, but let's talk about Coach Fife and our noon ball battles and the intramural football uh, that we played. Uh, do you have any stories from that you'd like to share? 
Well, certainly a lot of great battles, uh, three on three, four on four. Um, the, the, the favorite memory for me is when he had uh, Kirk Haston in town. And I'm not sure if you were there for this one, but Kirk Haston, obviously a former uh, NBA player, a uh, great player at Indiana, and, and Coach Pfeiffer on the same team, as well as a couple of the baseball coaches. And uh, they did not come out victorious that day uh, to a couple high school players. Uh, I think we had a couple college players. Maybe Terry Johnson played with us. Um, and then it, you talk about the intramural football. What people don't know is uh, Dane Fife was a, a great high school football player that had offers to play uh, at, at multiple BCS programs, uh, and he could really sling it around. Uh, and then, you know, Tony Jasic, pretty good player as well. Uh, but th- those were some fun times. I just every Tuesday afternoon during the fall, we were out there for uh, real football with the students. So we were young enough to do it and and enjoyed every minute of it. Well, it was a lot of fun, and, and to share a little bit about his competitive spirit, um, we one of my first times playing three on three. I was guarding Fife in the post, and he locked me up uh, and uh, with my right shoulder. And to give you an idea of the severity of this, I, I recently this past year had shoulder surgery, and the surgeon said that my shoulder was three times worse than Andrew Luck, who's just now getting back on the football field. So I say to say to Coach Fife, I'm like, hey, listen, you know, you just locked me up. My shoulder here uh, it isn't very good. And, and I thought, you know, we're playing noon ball, no big deal. So we recheck the ball and he immediately locks me back up in the same <laughs> shoulder to give you an idea of his competitive spirit. And then on the football field, I also like this. One of the days we were out there and you mentioned he was a tremendous quarterback back in the day. You know, I didn't play football, so we're out there and uh, we're destroying this team, uh, whoever we were playing. And uh, second half, I run like a five yard out and he throws the ball before I even turn around. So when I turn around about smacks me in the face, it pops up and uh, they intercept it and run it for a touchdown. And he lit me up. I mean, like you just <laughs> let me have it for not catching it. So uh, I always enjoyed uh, enjoyed those moments. You know, oh, yeah. I, I joined staff as the operations. I actually filled your position as you moved into an assistant. One of the things that amazed me, and it's always stuck with me, was how detail oriented you were. You worked long hours, but you had the most in- unbelievable respect from the players. I mean, they just they knew uh, how much you were in their corner and how much you worked for them. Is is that a mindset thing? Is that something you were intentional about or is that something that just kind of happened organically? Yeah, I think it kind of happened more organically. I think that back then, you know, as an ops guy, you don't have a ton of on-court interaction to be put in a leadership position. Uh, but I think the best thing for, for me, and, and I would recommend this for, for all operations guys or, or grad assistants, um, what I was in charge of was travel. So when we were on the road, I was kind of quarterbacking and leading, you know, what hotels we were staying in, what time the meal was, when the bus was going to leave, where the bus was going to go. So, so I kind of use that as a time to uh, address the team and, and try to get more comfortable talking to the team uh, in a leadership role. And, and I and I thought that that paid great dividends. Um, you know, obviously I was doing some film stuff and, and, and helping assist, you know, w- with what was legal and, and not legal. But uh, I, I think that that helped. And, and certainly uh, when I got my start as an assistant, uh, at least I had been uh, in their ear a little bit. 
Well, you went on to be an assistant coach and you guys were part of a, what I consider the founding kind of group that set Fort Wayne on the, the path um, to, to have some success. Obviously, the last couple of years they beat IU. That was kind of a big deal. But I, I think that really started with Coach Fife and then Coach Jessica and you guys as a group. Then you had the opportunity, a unique opportunity to go to Butler and, and you were giving up a, a role as an assistant coach to become a basketball analyst for you know, obviously one of the most respected programs uh, in the country. Talk about what it was like to kind of go through the process to make that decision. And then also you hear about the Butler culture and the Butler way. And, and, and you know, it's it's been so successful and so revered. Give us a beside, behind the scenes look uh, of what it was like um, being part of that program. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was a hard decision. We, we were right on the cusp, uh, as you mentioned, in, in Fort Wayne, and actually that that year that I left, uh, they won, team won twenty five games uh, and w- was within about a minute of going to the NCAA tournament. In uh, in Coach Jasic's, uh last year uh, up there in Fort Wayne, uh, so, so it's never easy. You know, you're giving up uh, obviously uh, a title and a role uh, to to take a step back, but you know th- this is a program in Butler that had been to, uh, you know, coming off of a couple Final Fours and, and Brad Stevens had just taken the job uh, with with the Boston Celtics. And, and what I saw was it's just a, an opportunity to be part of a special program, uh, learn from great coaches and, and kind of take a step, take a step back to, to take a step forward. Um you know, you mentioned the culture, the, the Butler way. I think that the, the thing about Butler is, you know, you think about everybody there is is a great teammate. You know, that that's kind of the, the mindset. And on top of that, they just have a great belief that no matter what, when they step on the floor, that they're going to have a chance to win the game. Uh, and they have that belief, but they also have great respect for the opponent. You know, it's it's not an arrogance, um, but but more of a confidence that, that hey, when when this game is in the final five minutes, we're going to be right there. And, and we struggled a little bit that year. That was the first year in Big East play, and I think our, our record was four and fourteen. But what people may may forget is, you know, that that first night Villanova comes in, they were seventh or eighth in the country when we went to overtime, and then we went to Xavier and lost in a in a close possession game, and then came back and lost in double OT to DePaul, and followed that up with another overtime loss to Georgetown. So, so we, we got slapped in the face. A couple times but we were competitive um re- really enjoyed indianapolis um and, and just everything that butler had to offer well and you mentioned obviously it starts at the top with their athletic director barry collier who really sets the tone for for their entire department that culture stretches you know just not just with the basketball program but beyond and i, I know you talked to me several times about that and being impressed you know, while you were there, there ended up uh, as you ended up making a change, and we'll talk about going to Jacksonville here in a second. But eventually, Chris Holtman, the assistant coach, uh, took over as head coach and, and had a lot of success. That ended up, uh, you know, him going to Ohio State this past year. My question for you is. Did you know, like, what did you see that year that you spent with with Coach Holtman uh, that that when he you knew that he'd kind of have that level of success uh, if given that opportunity? And then the no surprise in the year that he's been at you know, Ohio State, the success that they've had. Yeah, you know, he, he, uh, C- Coach Chris Holtman did did a similar thing as I did at a higher level. Uh, at a higher level is what he did is he was a head coach and he took a step back to be an assistant at Butler and him and I came in at the same time. Um, 
And, you know, when, when he was put in the interim role, I was, I was not there, but he, you know, he's, he's a great leader. He had great success at Gardner Webb, improved, uh, improved their team's record in, in the th- each of the three years that he, he was there. Um, and, and, you know, from what I can see, just built a great relationship with the guys and, uh, earned their respect. And it, it seemed like a, a seamless transition when, when he took over and, you know, credit that, that, that entire coaching staff you know Michael Lewis and and Terry Johnson those guys will be head coaches here before long and uh, Terry's at Ohio State and 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 uh, Michael's at at Nebraska doing great things well he seems to be a tremendous players coach but also an excellent tactician and uh, it's been really impressive to see the number of coaches that have gone on to have success um, from Butler and uh, I know you enjoyed you know learning from those guys and being part of that then you were fortunate enough to get the opportunity to to rejoin uh, Tony Jasek who got the head job at Jacksonville and uh, you became uh, an assistant coach there in an expanded role Um, obviously very familiar with his system going to a new place going to a new area how did you adapt um, going to a completely new region Um, you've been a Midwest guy you know most of your life here you go down to Florida you guys are doing something similar to what you did at IPFW trying to turn a program you know back in the right direction what was it like going to a new area and kind of acclimating yourself to the recruiting uh of the south yeah it it was certainly a change um you know i had never been i'd never been to jacksonville and i had to move down uh in september uh i came down uh which is you know a little bit out of the ordinary normally uh coaching stuff is going on in in april and you know a little bit through the summer um but i came down in september my wife was was pregnant um and it was it was a little bit of a rocky deal is I think that first season we only had uh, four or five scholarship players that were on the team uh, from the previous year um, and you know coming into a new region uh, recruiting a new area you know mainly everything that, that I had done was was in the Midwest and it, it's a change but it, it's been a good change and I think it it ultimately broadened your horizons because you know the state of Florida is uh, an unbelievable uh, amount of players down here. You know, you think about the junior college basketball that's down here, all the different uh, high level prep schools uh, that are down here and then and then the high schools as well. So I, I think that, you know, our, our approach when we got down here uh, remains the same uh, today. I think we want to build inside out. Uh, if we can, and certainly uh, be in our footprint uh, in the state of Florida, a little bit in Georgia, and and then go where we have relationships, whether that be the Midwest or the Northeast. Uh, and we just we just added Chad Eshbaugh to our staff last year. He's a he's a junior college, a former junior college head coach in Kansas. Um, you know, so we certainly will utilize that as well. Well, as you go into this next season, you guys have improved every year. Give me a give me a small outlook of uh, what your guys' expectations are for this upcoming year. Yeah, I think our, our roster is is pretty uh, pretty good. Um, 
last year we we did lose we lost basically three starters but what we do return uh is uh the freshman of the year in the atlantic sun conference in jd note uh another kid that was on the all freshman team in jalen hinton and then our leading scorer uh jace hogan was a junior he'll be a senior for us he'll be our lone senior and then we, we add uh a variety of uh, new players. We do have uh, an Ohio State transfer uh, in Dave Bell, who was here last year. Uh, he's available to us this season. Uh, Quentin Forrest, who was a double-digit scorer at Bethune-Cookman, sat out with Dave last year. So it feels uh, a little bit like a new roster, but we, we do have about seven or eight guys that were in the program last year, and fortunately three or four of them that played uh, significant minutes. Well, I want to shift the discussion a little bit and ask you some uh, some questions uh, in regards to coaching and, and different things that you've observed. Um, when an 18 year old shows up on campus, you know, what's the, one of the biggest difficulties you face in helping them to adjust to college expectations? You know, a lot of these kids come from programs where they're either the best player, big fish in a small pond, or if they've been part of a winning program, uh, they're used to uh, being, you know, one of the upper level players. What's that like helping them shift to uh, college basketball, the uh, expectations of academics and, and balancing both of those things? Yeah, I think you just you, you kind of have to manage their expectations a little bit, depending on who the player might be, particularly a freshman. Um, you know, if, if you're getting a Division One transfer, a junior college transfer, it's a little bit different because they've at least been through some type of college, uh, you know, both academically and athletically. Um, but when you have a freshman, I think you're just trying to get them acclimated to what, what their daily routine is going to be. You know, chances are, regardless if they're coming from a good program, you know, our guys are lifting right now four days a week. You know, so we, we, have, we have a couple freshmen on campus that are going through that. For, they're probably in week. I don't know, probably week six of being here right now. So it can wear on you a little bit. And then just getting acclimated, you're, you're going against grown men. You know, we have our front court uh, this year and Jace Hogan and Dave Bell. Those are two guys that are, you know, 21 and 22 years old. Uh, and if you're bringing in an 18 year old, that, that's a little bit different than what they've been going up against every day. So I think you just have to keep them keep them grounded and, and make sure that they understand that, hey, listen, put in the time, put in the work and, and you trust the process and your time will come. We talked about managing expectations. You know, one of the other things that it's, I feel like it's a little different for me on the women's side uh, than the men's side. And it reminds me of, and I'm going to mention the player's name, but when I was at IPFW, at that point, we were the sixth place team uh, and then we were part of the Summit League. And I remember our sixth man uh, had written on his shoe, such and such to the league. Uh, on his shoe. And I was confused, like what league, what possible league could you be, you know, the, the rec league, the, you know, the YMCA league. And this kid, this particular kid really thought he was going to play in the NBA. And, and as I got into coaching, I started to find more and more, you know, a lot of these guys just think they're going to go play in the pros and don't realize how difficult that is. How do you manage those expectations and get those kids kind of a, the, the dose of reality um, and balancing those expectations? Yeah, I think there's a couple things you can do. I think if if you if you sit down or if if you have even people from the NBA that can come in and break down how how the draft classes work, you know, you know, hey, there are 60 picks, only 30 are guaranteed uh, to to make money, you know, X amount 
coming over from Europe. Um, you know, this many guys are one and done. Here are the four-year players. Here's the percentage of players that, you know, played in the NCAA tournament, you know, this and that. I think you, you can make it, you know, so the player understands uh, that it will be very difficult. Obviously, at the same time, you want to be careful to not crush, uh, you know, any dream. The, you never know what's going to happen. You know, you, you see different guys coming from all different levels of college basketball that have gone on to have successful NBA careers that continue to play better um, and, and realize that their best basketball is in front of them. So I think it's a fine line between uh, making sure they understand that, hey, at some point, you know, basketball won't be here anymore and the ball is going to stop bouncing, but also let them know that you're behind them in trying to reach that dream, whether that be the NBA, the G League, or, or going to have a great experience in Europe. The other thing that's interesting for both you and I is I feel like we've crossed over um, in an age of social media. So now we're part of this information age and social media in recruiting. We were also part of that when that didn't exist. And so as a coach, how has the information age, Internet, social media and all that help the recruiting process? But then also I want you to look at it and talk about how it's hurt things as well. And when it comes to trying to connect with kids and all the different uh, kind of roadblocks that it can cause. Yeah, I think the, the one thing is, is, you know, very few prospects are going to go, uh, you know, quote unquote, under the radar anymore. You know, the, the, with with the website of, you know, for example, verbal commits, you know, you can basically see uh, who any school in your league or in your region has, has offered a scholarship to. Um, which is something that that wasn't around, you know, four or five years ago. Um, and, you know, the amount of time that you could spend scrolling through Twitter uh, for valuable information to learn about prospects, I just I don't see you don't see many of these players going under the radar, if at all. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it can be a positive because you can learn about different different players and you can get information quickly on who's recruiting guys. So I think from one aspect, it can be a benefit to your program. Um, and, and then in terms of dealing with with the player this day and age, I, th- I think you got to treat them the same way. You just have to understand that their their attention spans may not be the same. You know, we, we do little things in our program, as I'm sure you do. Uh, we're not taking our cell phones into the dinner table. Uh, we're not having our cell phones at team meetings. And th- th- that's you know, it's not only just because it could be a distraction to whatever we're doing in the meeting, but it's also so we create that human uh, personal development of, of human interaction. Um, and, and Coach Jasek is big on, hey, when we're at a restaurant, we're going to talk to one another and we're not going to be staring down at our phones. So our guys leave their phones on the bus. We go in, we eat, we talk with one another and, and we build relationships that way. Well, you said, I think the neat thing about social media and the internet is you can almost expand your uh, radar for kids that you possibly can recruit. Like you mentioned, there's not really a lot of secrets and you can search for things you can find out, um, you know, searching through newspaper clippings and different things to find out about the kid's character and, and, you know, follow them on social media, which a lot of times you can kind of tell, um, you know, how kids act or, or how they're going to conduct themselves basically by what they tweet out or put on Instagram and that kind of thing. But you mentioned something I think is really key is it's also put a, a premium on. I noticed time and time again, uh, and I think we're all guilty of this, of 
people being on their phone, being in their technology, having their earbuds in um, instead of that connection. And I think we have to spend more and more time being intentional uh, about making those connections, not just within our team, uh, but in, in the classroom, in and around campus, because we get so consumed by by social media. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's hard with with your team. I think it's hard, you know, with your family. I mean, the reality is for a coach, you, you need to have your phone uh, on you or by you uh, really at all times. Uh, but that can be that can become a distraction, obviously, um, and it can be with your players. So I think, like you said, you need to be intentional. You need to have times where you put the phone down. You know, I have an Apple watch and people ask, you know, do you like that? And I the real reason I like my watch is because I can put my phone on the coffee table and not have to have it in my lap or, or right next to me at all times when I'm sitting down uh, with my family or with my wife, uh, you know, just during the day or at night on the weekends, whatever. And, and you get the alerts on your watch. So if you, if it's something that's, that's pressing, you can go answer it or respond to a text, but if it's not, you can get back to it, you know, within a couple hours. Yeah. I didn't know the Apple watch, um, initially had the, the text message feature and we would be in a staff meeting. I had one coach that was always looking at her you know, wrist. I'm like, man, she's trying to get out of here. Like what, you know, yeah. what's going on? And finally I figured right. out what the Apple watch was, was all about. You mentioned earlier uh, when you first started as a manager, it was the VHS tapes and um, how now with video and the video technology, it's changed so dramatically for the better. Uh, it's easier um, and you're able to get more information. How has video changed and and what ways do you guys use it at Jacksonville to get the most out of, uh, you know, learning from games, learning from practices and opponents uh, to get that information to your players? Yeah, there's a lot of different things you can do, and I'm sure that there, there's things that we're, that we're not doing that, that could be a benefit both, you know, with efficiency and, and productivity. But, um, you know, we, we obviously all have our laptop. We are fortunate. We have two graduate assistants, and we have a director of basketball operations. So for our scouting, we pair a GA or, or our director of ops, Jared Rhodes, with one of the assistants. So you're with that assistant the whole year. Um, so they are doing like an advanced scout, uh, helping get things ready, uh, to make it a more efficient, uh, game to game transition for, for the assistant that they're working with, which, which is a great benefit. But on top of that, you know, we haven't even talked about synergy yet, but the amount of time you could spend on synergy for either scouting or even, um, you know, development for your players, you know, watching other college teams, watching different NBA moves. I think the, the stuff, you know, like the social media, it's endless. There's enough there uh, to consume you all day long. If you wanted to, it's just a matter of finding what works for you uh, both individually and as a program and, and, and getting the most out of it for your players. One last question before we get into some uh, uh, other sports talk, when you were the uh, basketball analyst at Butler. Um, some people may not know you actually lived with me for about a month or two before you got a house. And, uh, you're about six, three, uh, you, you're a heavy pushup guy, still doing strong pull-ups, uh, very, very good shape. Every evening you would eat the, the most bizarre foods at the most bizarre times, pizza, hot pockets, you know, ice cream, you name it. And uh, my joke with my wife, this was, you know, several years ago, 
I then got on that sweet tooth plan. I now <laughs> eat cookies and milk every night and I have not gotten off that wagon. And I'm wondering if you feel bad about that because you brought me into uh, your kind of funnel uh, of uh, poor eating. And I think you got out of it and I haven't. Well, to say I'm out of it, coach, would be a little misleading. I'm, I may not be on quite, quite what we would do, but you know, obviously, it's a little bit different when when you're when you're away from your family. So you're, you know, you're eating out a little bit more. You're eating at later times, um, w- which can be fun at the time. But, but if you, you need to, it, coach, if you're going to have the milk and cookies, you need to counter that with something during the day uh, to to balance that out and and, and get you back in your three three shape. It's so bad that my 21 month old, uh, about eight o'clock when she hears the bag, uh, Russell, she yells cookie time and runs right <laughs> up to me. So we've got, we've got that issue as well. We're developing bad habits, coach. No question. No question. Well, uh, when we come back, uh, really enjoyed our conversation on, on Dan's career and kind of some coaching insight, but some other things about Dan, you may not know big time Chicago sports fan and also an avid golf fan. So we're going to tackle the British open uh, and Chicago sports. So when we come back, we'll hear from Dan. All right, we're back with assistant coach Dan Bure. Dan, this weekend is the British Open. Uh, golf is one of our favorite pastimes. Before we get into the British Open, you tell me, what's your favorite major uh, of the four majors? I would say that it, it's the Masters, um, only because it's at the same course every year. Uh, obviously, it's got a rich tradition. Um, and and I, I just, I, I've been, I was fortunate to go there two years ago. You know, Jacksonville is about four hours from Augusta. So I went up a couple years ago uh, to watch the, the tournament. I have never played the course and, and probably never will. But I just, I feel like I know the holes out there better than I know some of the other mates just because you see them every year, you know, particularly the back nine. You, know, you talk about the par fives on 13 and 15 and, and you know, 16, the par three over the water. Um, and then, you know, tough finishing holes with 17 and 18. So I, I'd say the Masters would be my go-to and, and most enjoyable one to follow and watch. Well, I think the other thing, too, you mentioned is the appeal every year. I mean, just from a visual standpoint, uh, it's beautiful. You you know the holes, like you said, the familiarity with uh, year in and year out what it's like. For me, I would say it's the Masters. I would also add into that the British Open. Uh, I lived in England for a period of time, actually five minutes from Royal Birkdale, and uh, have uh, uh, some nice memories from that as well. The other thing that you and I both enjoy, and I think you've had an opportunity to go to, I know I have. Have you had a chance to go to a Ryder Cup? And if you have, uh, or, or just observations, what that, uh, that atmosphere is like? Ryder Cup has not been something I've been uh, privileged to. Uh, it's something that I feel like is a bucket list thing. Uh, we, we do have a member of our staff that has been to, I think he's been to a President's Cup. Um, and my dad has been to a Ryder Cup. So, so always get excited for that time of year. You know, football season starting, um, you know, so you're kind of in the, the more the team deal. And I think it's a perfect time for the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup. And hopefully, uh, the U.S. team can 
and get it done over overseas this year. Well, having lived overseas myself, uh, I that Ryder Cup I love. I got to go to the one when it was in Louisville at Valhalla, and I'll never forget Boo Weekly uh, going down the fairway, getting the crowd fired up, and just what that atmosphere was like. I mean, it was the closest thing to a you know being in a loud stadium that I'd ever been in, and um, knowing how hard the Europeans root against the Americans when you're over there. Uh, I, I love the Ryder Cup, and I'm excited to see. You know, I think the President's Cup's next, but uh, love, love the atmosphere uh, of a Ryder Cup. Tell everybody a little bit about when, you know, you were in Chicago growing up. Tell everybody about how you got to root for K.J. Choi and why you ended up being a big supporter of his. <laughs> um, I used to, during college, uh, in addition to some different, like, uh, basketball camps, I, I worked uh, at what's now called the BMW Championship. Back then, it was called the Western Open. It was one of the best summer jobs you could have. But basically, we got all access um, to to all the all over the golf course including the players locker room so for whatever reason kj Choi, just a nice guy was a really good player uh at that time he was you know i bet he was top 25 in the world uh and just always liked to say hey kj so it was (laughs) it was a deal for me um you know almost kind of a joking rooting interest but but once once you got to see how good of a guy he was you know no problem rooting for for kj Choi. Well, I remember you talking about being behind the scenes, you know, just being inside the ropes and kind of seeing the focus and, uh, you know, us casual golfers being able to see it from from a different angle. Um, you've also now got the Players Club Championship, correct? Uh, in in, in yep. Jacksonville. You know, you've had a chance to go to that several times now, you know, being down the street. What kind of advantages do you have and, and what's it been like for you to have that right there? It's it's off the charts. I feel like the event gets better each year. Um, Players Championship at TPC Sawgrass. It's about oh, I'd say it's probably twelve miles from campus. It's in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, which is a neighboring uh, neighboring city to Jacksonville. Um, have been out there every year. Have been fortunate to play the course about once a year uh, since since we've been down here. So I think the, the memories there. It, it's the same. It's not Augusta, obviously, but you know everybody's familiar with some of the holes out there. You know, one of the best finishing stretches with 16, 17, and eighteen, with the highlight being the the Island Green uh, there at seventeen. You and I are both huge Tiger Woods fans. It's been obviously a, a bit of a drought, a bit of a dark period, uh, and then he seems like he's starting to come out of it. My question to you, do you see him winning, ever winning a major again? And if so, uh, which of the four majors do you think that is more, most likely for him to win? Uh, well, Coach, you know the answer to that is yes. I, I do see him winning a major again. I, I don't know that it'll be this week. Um, I, I, I've read where he's got a new two iron in the bag, a little souped up deal. It looks like it's got like a screw in it. Um, so it's it's new technology um, that, that some of the other other guys I think have been using for a little bit. So so we'll we'll see. I think the the burned down fairways play into his hands. You know, he's able to maneuver his way around there. Uh, but I would say one that he's most likely to win i would i would think augusta just because it's something uh that he's really familiar with it's got the traditional four par fives which is typically what he he uh when, when he's winning majors he's dominating the par five so i i would think augusta but 
let's not count him out this week. Well, if he doesn't improve his driving, um, I think his best bet's going to be a British Open. I mean, you look at some of these guys that have won British Opens, you know, Patty Harrington, uh, Tom Watson, heck, it, you know, his age a few years ago was in the mix. You know, you don't have to be incredibly long, which means he can play irons off the tee. And it sounds like at Carnoustie this week, he'll be able to do that. You know, his only trouble is going to be the bunkers. And the problem now is you're facing the Dustin Johnsons, the world's the Brooke Kepska that can just fly the bunkers uh, on their drive. So that'll be interesting to see, you know, how that plays out. I, I've loved the, the PGA Tours FedEx Cup. I think it's been exciting. What do you think about them moving up their schedule to avoid, uh, you know, conflicts with the NFL? Yeah, I just I, I read about that uh, last week because I, it was it was all local news because they're changing the, the the time of year for the players championship with this new configuration. They're moving the players to March, which which is a problem because uh, we'll hopefully still be uh, in, in the mix with our season. Um, you know, it's been in May in, in the past, so I, I don't like that. But other than that, I think it's smart. They're moving the PGA. So I think you, what they've done is they've got a major about every month. And when there's not a major, you have uh, you have the players, uh, you know, which is, you know, the basically the fifth major. And then, you, and then you close out with the FedEx Cup. I think they're changing to three events. But I, I think it's good. I think I think everybody that, that pays attention to golf will look back in, in five years and, and say it was a good change. What do you know about Carnoustie, uh, the the host of this week's uh, British Open? I just know that it was the the famous uh, Open with with uh, Jean Vandeveld and his struggles on eighteen. Um, I don't know much other than that, other than they say the greens are in great shape and the, the fairways are burnt out. I know that hole 18 has a burn that, that winds around a couple times. And I think uh, even when Potty Harrington, I think he won it and put in the drink a couple times, but but still was able to come, come away the, the victor. So uh, a tough closing hole is about all I know about this course. Well, I also heard, too, that the rough is matted down. So some of the last couple of tournaments, especially coming off a of U.S. Open where uh, – if you hit it in the rough, you were automatic, have to chip out. It looks like they're going to be able to play out of it. So length could be a, a benefit this this week in the British Open that, you know, normally maybe not be as big a deal. Give me your favorite this week at the British Open. Who's your favorite? Uh, a c- couple guys. Uh, I think Tommy Fleetwood, who played well at the U.S. Open. Uh, Justin Rose, I think, has had a really solid year. And then um, – and I got to go with Tiger. Wow. You're going to go with Tiger. Well, my my favorite would be uh, Dustin Johnson. Um, if, if he's able to fly yeah. bunkers the way he's playing, uh, I think he's primed, especially since he wasn't able to quite get it done uh, at the at the U.S. Uh, US Open. Uh, he would be my, my pick. What about your dark horse? Who do you got there? Uh, I'm going to say... Uh, I'm not sure exactly how you say his first name. Francisco Molinari, I believe, is the name. Uh, he has been he, – he won an event a couple weeks ago and he played well last week. Uh, and and he's, you know, he's used to this style of golf. So I think he, he could be – I don't know if you'd consider him a dark horse or not because he's been playing well. But I, I got him as, as one of the other guys that can contend. I'm going to give a uh, – not one person. I'm going to give a – 
age 43 and over will be uh, in the last two groups uh, this week. Somebody 43 and over is going to be in the last two groups competing for uh, a British Open uh, championship. So I know you and I will be up early. If possible, you're going to be on the recruiting trail, so you're not going to be able to enjoy it quite as much. But I will be up early tuned in to see what's going on. Another big passion for you, the Chicago Cubs. You're one of the biggest Cubs fans that I know. They lead the Central right now. What do you like about this team and what pieces do you think they need to add before the trade deadline? Uh, what, what I like about this group is, is just their experience and their professionalism. You know, I, I read uh, a great book on, on the Cubs organization uh, called the Cubs way, which I would recommend for all coaches. It takes you kind of behind the scenes into Theo Epstein and, and Jed Hoyer kind of constructing the team and Joe Madden leading and managing the team. It was written by uh, sports Illustrated's uh, Tom Verducci. Um, but, but just the professionalism, you know, it's not easy uh, to, to have sustained success and to, to stay motivated, especially in baseball. You're talking about 162 games. So, just that, and I would say that the the, the starting pitching is probably something um, with, with Darvish being hurt. Uh, you know, he's a re- recent acquisition this past year when when Jake Arrieta left the team. Um, so I, I would think one other arm. You know, there's a lot of talk about Machado and, and other free agents, but I, I think our the I say our the, the Cubs position players uh, are I think I think good to go. You've obviously, if you're a Cubs fan, been through a lot of heartache and struggles over the years. But a few years ago, when the Cubs finally did it, you know, we weren't in the same city. I'm curious, where were you uh, at the time the Cubs won the World Series? And what do you remember most about that that epic journey? Uh well, what I remember most is I was fortunate to go to game five, um, which was on a Sunday night. It was the only game I could attend, uh, flew up, uh, you know, mid afternoon, went to the game and had the first flight back to Jacksonville the next morning. Uh, so that, that, that's the greatest memory. I went with my, my dad and, and two of my cousins. So that, that, that was a great time for us lifelong Cubs fans, especially my, my dad. Um, but uh, I was in the best place you want to be coach. I was in my living room watching, on, on, on my big screen TV uh, with complete control of the remote and sound and nobody bothering me. Uh, the games were on pretty late. My wife would stay up as late as she could, um, but I don't think she made it to the finish of that one, especially with the rain delay. So I, I, I was in my solitude and it was, it was a great time. I need to know if, uh, were there tears involved? Uh, no tears. The closest thing to tears was probably when they uh, beat the Dodgers in the NLCS. I would call that uh, teary-eyed, coach, not tears, teary-eyed. Um, when when they advanced the World Series, hearing Joe Buck call it, I'm a Joe Buck fan. I know he's a Cardinals guy, but I I thought he had a great call of it. Uh, you know, the Cubs are going to the World Series, so so I would say that was the closest thing to tears. You're also a big Bears fan. Uh, again, uh, kind of a tough stretch for those guys. How do you feel about the general direction of the uh, Bears organization and uh, what it looks like for their future? 
uh, I want to feel good. I, I've, you know, obviously I've been following coaches at all different levels and at all different sports. So I've, I've read up on, on Matt Nagy and I think he's the right man for the job. Obviously a, a strong offensive background for, for our new quarterback, uh, Mitch Trubisky. Um, and he, he seems like he, he did a lot of work in, in Kansas city, uh, with, with coach Andy Reid. So I'm optimistic, uh, uh, GM Ryan Pace uh, seems to ha- have graded out pretty well for the offseason that they've had. And I do think the NFL is probably the one league where you can flip a season or, or a, a franchise quicker than others. You know, I think baseball takes serious time, as as we saw with the Cubs. But I think in the NFL, you know, if you get a quarterback and you get a coach and you get a couple pieces, you can you can go from five or six wins to 10 or 11 wins pretty quick. Well, I like their draft class this year, Roquan Smith uh, on the defensive side and James Daniels, an offensive lineman. But I, I laugh because, you know, you see each draft, whether it be the NBA or the NFL, they always play the highlights and uh, some guys' highlights just jump off the page and you go, you know, you didn't need to spend millions of dollars. Like we can tell you that guy's going to be a stud and boy, right. Roquan Smith looks like an animal. I mean, he, and, and, and you know, the, the bears have always had really good linebacker play. So to get him in there, I think is a big key. Absolutely. I think the, 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 the nice thing, and this is kind of the way the NFL has gone with their coordinators, uh, you know, kind of being two separate entities with the coaching staff, offense and defense. And, uh, the bears were able to keep defensive coordinator, Vic Fangio. So I think to, to add him into the mix with, with an already, uh, you know, proven coordinator, I think will be, will be great. Last question for you, the Bulls. Give me your update on the Bulls. I saw they recently signed Jabari Parker and Wendell Carter's obviously had a good, uh, actually an outstanding uh, summer league. Where do you stand with them? Uh, obviously just hoping that, that we can get back to the playoffs and, you know, was really into the, the Tom Thibodeau years, uh, you know, when, when we were contending and obviously we had, we had LeBron James in our way, uh, about each and every year. Uh, but he's in LA now. So hopefully, you know, over these next few years, we can put some of these young guys together and, and, and advance and, and see what can happen. Well, the other part too, as you mentioned, you know, besides obviously having quality players, but it's quality coaches. I mean, the Cubs have, you know, one of the best coaches in the game and, and Joe Madden, you know, the Bears just hired a new coach in Nagy. You mentioned Thibodeau had it, had it going and his philosophy and style was very successful. And, and Fred Hoiberg was a tremendous college coach. Not every college coach has been able to transfer into the NBA. Um, in fact, you know, Brad Stevens is one of the few guys that's been uh, so, so successful. Do you think Hoenberg's going to be able to reach those guys? Because you hear a lot of uh, a lot of stuff out of Chicago of, of you know, uh, a lot of t- adversity there and, and, you know, different relationships with the players. Yeah, I, th- I think I think he's going to do a great job. I mean, like you mentioned, proven track record. I think a, a lot of the times, you know, where is, you know, how, how much time are these college guys given and, and what do their rosters look like? You know, a lot of times the – 
guys are even even back with I think Patino when he came to Boston. You know, where, where was their roster at at that point? You know, it's such a players driven league. You, you need to have great coaching, no question. Um, but I think I think let's see what Hoiberg can do when when he gets a, a full complement of players. Um, you know, the, when he first came in, it was it was a transition. You know, guys were towards you know the later parts of their career. Joe Kim Noah. You know, hopefully Derek Rose can continue on. But he 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 was you know he had come off several injuries. So I think we got to give him time and 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 let him work with these young guys and see what see what can happen. Well, Dan, it's been a joy to have you on the the podcast. You're obviously one of my closest friends and one of the guys I talk to quite a bit uh, about the game and different things. And uh, we will be rooting for Jacksonville this year. And best of luck the next couple of weeks in recruiting. Enjoyed it, Coach. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to Dan for joining the podcast this week. Really enjoyed hearing about his career, talking about the British Open, and also a little in-depth insight into Chicago sports. Be sure to sign up for the podcast on iTunes, Parks Pod. We'd love to have you rate us and continue to listen. Hope everybody has a great week. Enjoy the British Open and go Tigers.